Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Just a warning for Indigenous listeners, if this conversation raises anything for you, consider calling 13 Yarn 139276, the 24-7 National Support Line for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, or call Lifeline on 13 11 14. This is Black Bias, an in-depth look at the representation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities in the news. A special fourth estate coming to you through the studios of 2SER and heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. I'm Rihanna Patrick, a Torres Strait Islander journalist and broadcaster. I spent almost two decades at the ABC working across news, TV documentaries and national radio programming amongst other things and have been in the media game for nearly 25 years. And I'm Madeline Heyman Reba, a proud Gomorrah woman and Indigenous affairs journalist. I've worked in the media for 11 years across commercial, community, and Indigenous media, including NITV, 10 News First Melbourne, and Community Radio. Now, Maddie, we've seen and heard a lot during our time doing this job, and something that we've heard time and time again is how we bring bias to our jobs when reporting on Indigenous stories as Indigenous journalists. That's right, and it's happened within the newsroom from our colleagues and from our audience. As journalists, our work is always factual and brutally honest, but it seems that speaking our truth is frowned upon by much of the industry. And that's why we pretty much decided to call this six-part series Black Bias as a way of looking at how the media has represented our communities during major public health issues, ownership of land and racism, to how they even report on race. While the representation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the news has indeed come a long way in how our communities are reported on by mainstream news outlets, unfortunately, the negative stereotypes, deficit narratives and unethical practices continue. Even during the pandemic and the recent floods in various parts of Queensland and New South Wales, when it comes to major events, the reporting of our communities can still elicit scrutiny and focus, which never seems to apply the same way to news stories involving non-Indigenous people. The recent flooding, particularly in the Indigenous communities of the Northern Rivers region of New South Wales, were front of mind for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders across the country. Look, uh, you know what blackfellas are like. If it happens to one of us, it happens to all of us. So the, the outpouring of offers to support our communities here, even for, you know, Sydney, taking calls from Sydney mob, Melbourne mob, saying how can we help? And, and I guess even though the Koori Mail has suffered a great loss here, um, our key responsibility is to make sure that our people are OK first, not just our staff, of course, not just our board members, but our community. So we're really trying to take the lead and be a hub of information for our mob. That was Naomi Moran from the Koori Mail in Lismore talking to NITV's The Point before the water had receded. Since then, the Koori Mail has been busy coordinating cleanups, getting supplies out to cut off Indigenous communities, helping the wider non-Indigenous community and also sourcing whatever has been needed despite their own offices being affected by floodwaters. And it's during times like this that Indigenous media is more than just a newspaper or radio station. They become the boots on the ground, helping their communities while keeping their media organisations going. 
Gamilaray and ULRA journalist Lorena Allen is the Indigenous Affairs Editor with Guardian Australia and has been part of the Indigenous media sector for three decades. Lorena, how important is Indigenous media when there's a natural disaster or a major public health issue? Well, it's like Naomi Moran just said before, when it happens to one of us, it happens to all of us. And, and Indigenous media very much see are part of the community. So when something happens to the community, Indigenous media are the way people get information and give messages to each other to give shout outs of support, even if it's just sending a song to somebody and making a request, uh, messages to family to make, you know, let them know you're okay or that you need help or whatever. So, I mean, they're so important because the mainstream media just doesn't consider us until we raise our voices loudly enough that they take notice. So Indigenous media are the, the first sort of port of call. And, and you know, when, when you look at how COVID has rolled out across the country, you see how important Indigenous media have been to public health messaging. Um, the federal government, when it wanted to, when it finally got around to, to funding public health messaging in Indigenous communities, that was the first place they went to. Was, uh, was Aboriginal radio around the country and uh, and to our broadcasters who speak so many different languages who are so important to translating those messages into languages that people use every day, not just the, the English and the white fellow terminology around um, around the, the virus. They were really helping translate ideas and concepts into, into things that Aboriginal people could understand and, and, and spread that message. I'm thinking, you know, that really fantastic, it was a fantastic set of uh, videos that, that was produced around the top end that Robbie Collins and, and others were in that were dubbed into different languages. And then there was a really deadly poster that AMSAMP put out where it measured social distancing for, for mob in the top end, like it was one salty or 10 footballs or, you know, like one, 10 boomerangs, like that's how far apart you had to stand. So just really clever things like that. And when you look at what the Koori Mail's been doing up in the North, uh, Northern Rivers region, it's just amazing how they're just a role model. And I'm, I'm astonished at how committed they are to helping people when they've lost their own homes and the, the business itself has literally gone under. Um, yeah, so they really set an example for everybody. I mean, Lorraine, I mean, guess, you know, what has really stuck with you about what Koori Mail has been doing and the capacity that they've had in what has been a very trying time for all of those communities. It was really so just devastating to hear that they'd lost their whole paper archive. Like, that's a loss for all of us. That's such an important archive for, for all of Australia and, and for our history, you know. Um, I think that was such a tragedy. And to hear that staff had lost their houses as well, and they still turned up, like, literally the very next day, they were there putting out messages to people, helping people, raising money on GoFundMe for the local community. They're very much part of the Bundjalung mob, like they're funded through Bundjalung people, so they they really take that commitment very seriously. And they were doing doing it in a way that none of the others did. You know, like you look up, you look at the coverage up there, there were, you know, six or seven ABC journos reporting live from the flood zone. But Corey Mail were there literally rolling up their sleeves and helping people clean out their houses and offering food and supplies and getting messages out about what people needed. And not just for blackfellas either. They were saying, you know, this is open to everyone, which was incredibly generous under the circumstances, given that the mainstream hadn't even 
thought to to ask Aboriginal people up there how they were going. Well, while the Koori Mail and these flood affected communities continue to recover and start the mammoth task of rebuilding, let's go back to the second half of last year to another event that saw Indigenous media coming to the forefront when our communities faced what they, we'd been trying to avoid, the pandemic. The Above and Beyond Broadcasting, a study of First Nations media in the COVID-19 pandemic was co-authored by First Nations Media Australia and JNI, the Judith Nielsen Institute for Journalism and Ideas. And it looked at the response from Indigenous media during this time. It had a look at the work of Orcania River Radio, Poor Media in Central Australia and 3K ND in Melbourne. And that study found, among other things, that First Nations media is an essential service for these communities, that it serves, and especially so in times of crisis, that First Nations media organisations needed committed funding in order to keep producing tailoring messaging for the vaccine rollout, and that state and federal government Indigenous health roundtable and advisory groups could benefit from providing opportunities to First Nations media representatives to share their knowledge. Lorena, if we look at The Guardian Australia's coverage, what was the focus of your reporting during that outbreak of COVID-19 in Indigenous communities in Western New South Wales? Yeah, so our focus was to ask, you know, serious questions, investigate what was really going on and ask serious questions of uh, the governments involved about how they were treating people, whether they were doing their jobs, whether they were meeting their commitments. I mean, you know, it was pretty obvious very early on that they weren't. And um, it was, I mean, that's where all my family are. And so I was worried for them personally because I knew how low the vaccination rates were out there, not through any fault of our own, but because people didn't have access to vaccines much earlier in the pandemic. You know, it was, it was astonishing, but not really surprising that, you know, the government said, the federal government said Aboriginal people were our, their first priority as the most vulnerable groups. They should get vaccinated first. I just knew that wasn't happening. And the, the rhetoric coming from the federal government was that people were vaccine hesitant. That was only a very small part of the picture. So what I wanted to do was investigate whether that was true or not. And it turns out that, well, it was a small part of the picture, but basically people had no access to vaccines. They hadn't been, Aboriginal health services had been crying out for months saying, we need vaccines, we need extra staff to deliver vaccines. Mob aren't going to turn up at the showground and sit in their car for four hours to get A, to get tested and then to get a shot. They want to come to the AMS where they trust us and they know us um, or we want to be able to go to them in their homes and give everybody a vaccination or check up on mob when they're getting sick. Um, and we want to be funded to do that. That was a pretty reasonable request, but none of that happened early on. So our focus at The Guardian was on uh, asking questions of governments about what was being done and really looking into whether the data was uh, matching the rhetoric and we found that it wasn't. Lorena, can you dive into that a little bit more? Because you actually had an exclusive on those COVID-19 vaccine rollout figures in Indigenous communities in New South Wales. And I mean, what else did you discover once you started to look into that as you continued where I guess the line of stories were going at that time? The first couple of things that we did was look at the broader national stats because they did, the Federal Health Department just wasn't giving us information about basic things like how many Aboriginal people are already vaccinated, how many have had their first or second dose, where those people lived. The Health Department, Federal Health Department, just were, in the early days of the pandemic wasn't providing that information and we suspected it was because it was pretty bad and we were right. So 
when we did first get access to that data, it was through Nacho because Nacho had access to that, what they call a health dashboard. And a lot of the local Aboriginal health services didn't have access to that and needed to know where to focus their efforts, like which part of the community needed vaccination first. It turned out that a lot of our elders were okay because they had been vaccinated by our community-controlled health organisation, but it was the younger generations who were missing out and they were the ones most at risk of bringing COVID home to their, to their mob. So when, when those federal figures came out and we saw how way, 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 way lower than the, the mainstream numbers our vaccination rates were, we uh, had access to information from the New South Wales government that showed that there was a huge gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous vaccination rates in every region of the state, particularly the mid-north coast and especially western New South Wales. They were the two worst places. The Achos had been saying for since the start of the pandemic, we need access to vaccines. We need, and they had all been ready to access AstraZeneca. When AstraZeneca, when the federal government changed the health advice and said that AstraZeneca should only be given to under 50s, that was pretty much the entire Aboriginal population, because as we know, we're all we're a very young population. So a lot of people went, well, I'm not having Astra, that's dangerous. I'm, you know, people were acting in out of concern for their health. Um, I'm going to wait till Pfizer comes in. And then when the federal government changed the advice and everyone was supposed to get Pfizer, there was suddenly a shortage of Pfizer and Aboriginal people couldn't get the vaccine for a much longer period, by which time the virus had arrived in our communities and was ripping through communities out west like Dubbo, Walgut and Wilcannia, uh, Brewarrina and Burke. So when we had that data from the New South Wales government, it really just proved that there was an urgent need for the government to pull their finger out and do something to, to um, handle this outbreak. Um, and it turned out Wilcannia at, at one stage had the worst, the highest rate of COVID in the country for a tiny community that had done so much themselves to keep this virus out. And, you know, it was just really clear that our mob once again had been let down. Lorena, what part did the media play in contributing to vaccine hesitancy in our communities? Well, I think um, reporting around that change that I noted about AstraZeneca and Pfizer, when the federal government's change of advice came in, that caused a lot of confusion among our mob about, well, hang on, so I shouldn't get Astra then? Uh, I should wait for Pfizer because I'm only 48, for example. Um, I'm, I'm being told I can't have Astra. The, the local AMS, that's all they've got. They haven't got any Pfizer, so I can't get vaccinated until they get Pfizer. And at that point, there was a national shortage and the federal health minister was out trying to do deals with other countries to get access to Pfizer vaccine. So there was hesitancy because of that reportage. But also I think social media played a big part in, in the um, misinf disinformation that was being promoted in, in Aboriginal communities. You know, there were a lot of religious groups that were telling mob not to get the vaccine because it was dangerous. It was that all sorts of crazy stuff was being touted. At that point, no other information that they could look to that was tailored to, to them that could counteract that. So at that point, Aboriginal media weren't being resourced to, to do the public health messaging that they, that they later were. Once the public pressure and the outrage had built to the point where they, the federal government realised they should put some money into this, 
and then First Nations media were resourced to do that, that work. The delay in the COVID-19 vaccine rollout in Indigenous communities was approached in different ways, depending on the media reporting about it. While some media were critical of vaccination efforts in Western New South Wales, like ABC's 7.30 story in late August last year by Indigenous journalists Ella Archibald Binge and Bridget Brennan, and The Guardian Australia's full story, Australia's failure to vaccinate Indigenous people, with yourself, Lorena, and your Indigenous colleague, Laura Murphy-Oates, which was earlier in August. The narrative for other media outlets turned from focusing on the government failing Indigenous communities to personal blame of individuals. The Australian was one of a number of outlets who reported on the death of the first Indigenous person to die from COVID-19 in late August 2021. And the story names the deceased man, features a photo of him, mentions his race, that he'd served jail time previously, that he'd lived in housing commission in a certain part of Dubbo and that he was unvaccinated. Lorena, when pulling a story together, what guides you as an Indigenous journalist in the way that you include or don't include certain information reporting on a particular news event? Well, the way Rihanna's just described that story uh, is such classic victim blaming um, and value judgments that are placed against our mob. Um, so the first thing I don't do is that. So for example, when, you, when talking to families who've lost a loved one in custody, they're not to blame, they haven't done anything wrong. Um, they often feel like that they have been dragged into a, a situation where they're somehow being scrutinised and judged. So a lot of what I do when I talk to mob is to just tell their story, give them the opportunity to, to tell it the way they want to tell it. The reason, for example, with the death in custody coverage that we do, the reason why a person is in jail isn't relevant because incarceration is the punishment. Um, if somebody dies in jail, it's not because of the crime they committed, it's because of a systemic failure. And so the issue is the failure, not, not the person. And if we look at the way that the story was reported in The Australian, you know, that was also called out by an ABC Rural West journalist and an Indigenous journalist at NITV on Twitter. And they too pointed out some of the things that you've mentioned, Lorena, around the mentioning of the criminal record and also that some of the family had not been told of this person's death prior to that story being published. And so if we dig into this and look at things like if you're a member of the Media Entertainment and Arts Alliance and the MEAA, there's a code of ethics which encourages uh, their members, particularly in journalism, to commit themselves to, and there are these 12 standards. And I think the ones that are specific to this story are not placing unnecessary emphasis on personal characteristics, which include race, ethnicity, nationality, gender, age, sexual orientation, family relationships, religious belief, or physical or intellectual disability, but also a clause around respect, private grief and personal privacy and that journalists have the right to resist that compulsion uh, to intrude. And, you know, Maddie, when we look at some of those other standards and those guidelines, I guess, that you have to abide by when you are doing this work, I mean, what are some of those others? The Australian also has its own editorial code of conduct. Point one of, point one of the code states that reports should be accurate and not misleading. Point 1.4 says that correction should be made should this occur. A case may be made that the vaccination information was actually misleading. Point 16.0 of the code says that journalists should respect the wishes of the bereaved or grieving. It appears that this was not the case with this report. And while 
19.0 focusing on discrimination does not reference health, housing or criminal records as specific categories. It says sensitive information around identities should not be included in a report unless they are relevant. And arguably, the personal information in this report was not relevant. And even when you look at the Australian Press Council standards and there is a growing expectation that journalists will be sensitive to cultural concerns around the naming of deceased people, uh, the report also looks like it might breach Australian Press Council standards by invading the deceased's privacy and causing family distress. And publishers and editors are also responsible for adhering to the Australian Press Council Statement of Principles, which the Australian is a member of as well. And the APC standards are quite general and include no specific principles in relation to race or indigeneity, but they are extremely clear when it comes to individual privacy. Um, And APC General Principle 1, Accuracy and Clarity, says that factual material should be accurate and not misleading. Um, It should show respect for the dignity and sensitivity of those who feature in the news. And specifically, it states that a media organisation should only disclose sufficient personal information to identify the person being reported in the news. So it could be seen that the Australian's report revealed a lot more than this. And the principle notes that care should be taken when focusing on individuals that the publication should ensure fairness and balance. And it should make sure that members of the public caught up in newsworthy events should not be exploited. And there are a number of other principles, but aside from the Australian Press Council standards, there are no enforceable press standards for print journalism and there are separate ones, again, for broadcast. What do you think the bigger conversation will be in the post-pandemic when that should happen about public health journalism, Lorena? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think that the reporting on our mob, uh, you know, that, that man who passed away in Dubbo, who was the first, you know, tagged as the first Aboriginal person to die of COVID, I mean, that's a terrible burden for his family to carry, that label. Um, so it's problematic from, you know, from the very beginning, that kind of a story. Um, I would say, just another thing I would say about that is that we knew his name as well, but we chose not to publish it, just out of respect to him and his family. His criminal record is irrelevant to the fact that he had COVID. The fact that he lived in public housing is irrelevant to the fact that he had COVID. And the, the, um, I think the sympathy uh, that his family received was next to nothing compared to the outpouring of grief that, that has been in the media about, and, if fair, and, and rightly so, about people who have died in aged care. Our mob have died in aged care too. But a lot of the time we are either rendered invisible by the media or we are one person stands to, you know, represent some kind of stereotype that we have no say in. Looking over the way that we cover public health emergencies in in Aboriginal communities in the future, we really do need to get on the ground and get people's eyewitness accounts of what's happening. That's what happened in Wilcannia, because when you hear what people on the ground are experiencing, uh, it's it's radically different to the things that we were being told in those daily press conferences by premiers around the country. So privileging our mob's voices on the ground is part of any public health uh, media coverage in the future. It should be a really fundamental part of that but also respecting people's privacy. So, you know, reporting on cases of COVID in Wilcannia, um, some people wanted to be anonymous, some people were happy to be 
to have their photos taken and their names part of the coverage uh, to stand in front of cameras. That takes real courage in a small town um, and it takes courage if you're a health worker in a small town because when the media cameras, when the lights all go away, you've still got to work there and live there and face people every day. So we need to be really careful and respectful about how we treat people before, during and after the journalism that we do out there, especially the after, you know, like um, this this virus is going to be with us for, for a long time to come. So um, while the outbreaks might have gone away, the, the effects of COVID will be felt in our communities for, for years to come. This is another thing we need to vaccinate against, like the flu and that every other pressure that, that community controlled health organisations have now. It's just another thing to feed into that. So um, we have a responsibility to abide by our codes of ethics around that. And to also, uh, I think, really acknowledge the role of community media because they, they're not just... I mean, I've been reporting on pandemics and investigating, but they're out there doing things that MOB really needs, so delivering food, you know, and well, can you, they were, you know, they, that's how they rallied the community. Oh, we need somebody to go out. They did see Deliveroo, which was so awesome, bringing room meat into people, you know. So they just, they helped keep everyone in contact and helped kind of manage the relief effort. So those things are really important and you can't do that unless you get the resources that you need. So, you know, the federal government should be better resourcing the Indigenous media sector. Yeah, Lorena, I think that bigger conversation around public health journalism is going to be an interesting one and probably one that, again, has come to the forefront because of the times that we find ourselves in. And so I think it's going to be interesting to see how that sector develops in terms of maybe even guidelines of how to do this kind of work at a time when the community really needs it. Because what, yeah, because what's happening is that actually victim-blaming, that deficit narrative has just been really prevalent around COVID. And it's no surprise because that's how they report on every other health issue that, that Aboriginal people have. You know, it's somehow our fault that we get rheumatic heart disease and it's somehow our fault that we have diabetes and not the fact that we don't have access to healthy food. So, you know, so there's always an important context to public health journalism uh, and Indigenous journalists, by and large, bring that context because we we and we've lived it. We have family who have heart problems, and you know, are on any number of medications for any number of things. Uh, our life expectancy is low, so the the context of that, the social determinants of health, um, should be part of the reporting, and it's often just glossed over, um, like we're somehow we don't care about our health. We don't look after ourselves properly. All of those, you know, inaccurate stereotypes just keep getting replicated in the mainstream. Well, Lorena Allen, thanks so much for talking to us. Oh, thank you. It's been good. Thanks, guys. The call for better resourcing of the Indigenous media sector is nothing new, but the pandemic and recent floods has again proven why Indigenous media is so vital for communities as a way of sharing much-needed information, providing help when needed, and being there for much wider support. This has been a special episode of Fourth Estate on 2SER. Black Bias has been made possible with the amazing support of University Technology Sydney, UTS, indigenousx.com.au and JNI, the Judith Nielsen Institute for Journalism and Ideas. Technical production by Marlene Even in the studios of 2SER 
based on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Research by Archie Thomas and Professor Heidi Norman. If you'd like more information about the Above and Beyond broadcasting study into First Nations media and the COVID-19 pandemic, you can find a link below in the episode description. I'm Rihanna Patrick. And I'm Madeline Heyman-Reba. And thanks for listening to Black Bias.